Oye, 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 all persons having any manner or form of business before the Honorable, the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit, are admonished to give their attention for the court is now sitting. God save the United States and this Honorable Court. Good morning, Council. We are um, prepared to hear argument in... Um, 19-2222, Casa de Maryland versus Donald Trump. Um, I want to say we face a set of challenging circumstances uh, this spring, and I appreciate everybody's um, patience, and we are um, delighted to have you before us today. And, and let's um, proceed with argument. And Mr. Sinzak, would you like to um, begin, please? Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, may it please the Court, Jerry Sinsdak appearing on behalf of the United States. The District Court's injunction is flawed and should be set aside. As a threshold matter, Plaintiff Costa de Maryland lacks standing to pursue its claim against the rule. Costa alleges that it has had to divert resources away from pursuing, for example, healthcare advocacy and other policy efforts to educating its members about the rule. But this court held in Lane versus Holder uh, that such voluntary diversions of resources are insufficient uh, to confer standing upon an organization. Uh, accordingly, for the reasons articulated in the Lane case, uh, CASA lacks standing. Uh, plaintiff's claim also fails on the merits. Uh, as the Ninth Circuit explicitly held, um, the rule is easily a reasonable interpretation of the public charge provision. In 1996, uh, Congress made clear that in uh, amending the immigration and welfare laws, it sought to ensure that aliens would not rely on public benefits to meet their needs and would, um, in public benefits would not serve as an incentive uh, for immigration to this country. The rule accords uh, with those purposes. Um, on the standing point, <clears throat> initially, the uh, question I had is, how do you distinguish um, this case from Havens Realty? Uh, yes. Uh, so, you know, what the Supreme Court has said in Havens Realty is that, you know, there must be a uh, perceptible impairment of an organization's ability to carry on its activities. And the court concluded that one that engages in uh, a certain market, uh, combating discrimination in a certain market, uh, there are their activities can be impaired, although they hadn't necessarily established that at the, at the time, can be impaired by discriminatory practices. But what this court made clear in Lane is simply diverting resources from one activity to another is not a perceptible impairment. And that's, that's all that uh, CASA has alleged here. The only example they've given of an actual uh, harm that they've experienced is that they've diverted their resources from... Uh, from so this is all a matter of degree? Um, well, I, you know, I don't know that diversion of resources alone would ever be sufficient, that there has to be some uh, kind of impairment, and I think the Pacific Legal Foundation case is a good example of that, where the rule made it more expensive for uh, an organization to participate in, in an agency rulemaking, which is what their normal activity was, and therefore, um, you know, there was an actual perceptible impairment of what they were trying to do, but here all that CASA has alleged that they're trying to do is educate members about about the various rules and, and immigration policies. If the if the organization lacks standing, the individuals in the plan in the um, case would still have standing, would they not? Well, I mean, I think we would agree that an individual who could show that they were uh, imminently harmed by the rule and, and subject to it and so forth, yes, we we would agree that it. So your 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 view is that. It's not that no one has standing. Your your view is that um, the case for individual standing is stronger than the case for organizational standing. That's correct, Your Honor. In fact, yeah, we would anticipate you know aliens would have standing if certainly if they were removed or, or declared inadmissible as a public charge, they would have standing. And an organization might have standing in a representational capacity if they could identify members, uh, you know. And meet the other representative representational standing requirements, but they, you know, they haven't done that here, and we don't think they've identified any members or individuals who are subject to the rule either. Counsel, this is this is Judge King. Uh, the Judge Graham 
only ruled on organizational standing. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, and if, so that if we agree with you on the organizational standing issue that they lack it here, what do we do? Well, then, you know, in that case, I think, you know, there is no basis for concluding on the record, and certainly plaintiffs have only argued in a footnote that they might have representational standing or that the individuals might have standing. So I think, uh, you know, that argument isn't properly presented. So I think you would have to conclude that the organization lacks standing, and that's the only plaintiff who obtained an injunction in this case, and would have to reverse on that ground. And then if the district court wanted to reconsider standing of other parties or or whatnot, or their request for an injunction could do so. Now, was there not an amended complaint filed with uh, that with the city in it or something? Uh, yes, I believe the city has, has joined the case, but as at present, they haven't sought an injunction as far as I know, and certainly the court hasn't granted them one. Is, your, is it your position that that complaint is not part of the record on appeal? That's correct, Your Honor. And, and we would, you know, I don't know what specific allegations the city of Baltimore has made. Um, you know, we've contested the standing of other cities and other litigation uh, in other circuits. So I assume we would also uh, object to their, you know, to their standing. If, if that issue so your position is they don't, you don't have to deal with that today. Exactly. Uh, this is Judge Demar. And uh, I'm wondering whether the complaint uh, where it alleges the status of the individuals, whether the allegations of the complaint are sufficient to justify standing uh, uh, along the lines that Judge Wilkinson had asked. In other words, if we agreed with you on uh, uh, CASA, uh, don't we still have to confront the notion that the individual plaintiffs are plaintiffs and they have alleged circumstances that apparently puts them in at risk under these under this rule. I mean, Your Honor certainly could address it. I mean, plaintiffs have, have so far, you know, in their briefing, only addressed it in a footnote, which you know, obviously this court can consider that waived. But if, if you did want to address it and look at the allegations, we don't think those allegations are sufficient to show that they face any imminent threat of harm. I mean, these are individuals who there's no uh, suggestion that they are using public benefits or would use public benefits. They're, um, not even I don't think there's an allegation that they're planning to imminently adjust their status, which would which would mean you know they're not imminently subject to the rule, and nor is there any reason to think that they wouldn't that they would meet uh, or that they would be considered a public charge under the rule, given that they're both young and you know in college and employed and so forth. And, and that's the example of given in the rule itself of a person who wouldn't be likely to be found a public charge. So uh, you know I don't think the allegations of that those individuals make is sufficient to show that they face an imminent threat of injury from the rule. Well, I, um, I, I think the case for individual standing is a bit stronger in look, looking over these complaints than the, for organizational standing, but um, turning to the merits, and the, of course the um, merits have been uh, fully briefed and uh, discussed here. Um, how can you determine with this new rule, um, because this is a question of admissibility rather than deportability. So we're looking, we're making a future forecast with this rule. And how, how can you determine with any certainty um, whether someone is likely to receive uh, 12 months of public benefits over a 36-month um, span at any point in their life. I mean, isn't, are you guilty of a wild guess, or is this a shot in the dark? Um, it, uh, it seems to me to involve a very difficult predictive judgment. Uh, yes, Your Honor. I mean, I, I mean, obviously, the, the statute itself requires the agency to to determine, you know, whether a person will be a public charge, quote, at any time, and and so it's always, in a sense, been a, a predictive exercise, you know, even under the old rules, the 1999 guidance, which was about cash benefits. But you know, in terms of of the rule itself, I think one of the main thrusts and the purposes of the rule is to set forth a framework that 
identifies, and that's never been done before, that identifies the factors that an adjudicator um, should consider, and, and, and within the rule itself, the, the lengthy explanation is 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 a justification for each of the factors that are that are listed, um, as as you know, as bearing on the question of whether someone is likely to use public benefits in the future. So you know. You, whether we'll have to wait and see as, as applied, you know, the, the type of circumstances, but the rule certainly sets out examples of, of individuals who, who will be deemed likely to uh, be a public charge, individuals with serious medical conditions without a history of employment, um, you know, with past usage of benefits, for example, if, if that comes up, and so forth. So, you know, the idea behind the rule in part, and in, in, in there isn't a challenge really to the you know, before you right now to the whether the application will be arbitrary or, or not. But um, are you saying that the rule specifies guidelines for the application by these officials? It does. It, it, it number of, uh, yes, exactly, Your Honor. It lists a number of factors that they are to consider um, in evaluating uh, whether. But all that's within the, is within this twelve of thirty six rule. It's all within that within the rule exactly. It's you know the statute. Twelve of thirty-six is the main are the main points, right? Right. So the idea is that we're trying to identify that someone. 12, who will, is it fair to say that that twelve and that thirty-six were just pulled out of the air? Uh, uh, no, Your Honor. The the twelve months uh, was based on looking at studies of benefits usage, and this is discussed in, in either the proposed rule or actually I think it's discussed in the actual rule itself. <laughs> Um, was was determined based on a look at, at usage patterns and studies governing usage patterns and a determination that you know people who who use it for at least 12 months tend to use it for much longer than that um, and there are, and there are a number of people who use it for less than that and, and the agency determined that if you are using it for less less than that then you are just temporarily or intermittently using it um, and, the th and some of the things that were to be counted uh, or could be counted are uh, items or benefits that has never been counted as part of a public charge before. That's true, Your Honor, uh, that, that they are not. But they are, I, I do want to emphasize that the, there are only three, at least on non-cash non benefits, which are the new benefits, there are only three benefits that are, are, are being considered here in the universe of possible public benefits. And they, are, and they go to their means-tested benefits that go to basic necessities of food, health care, and housing. Um, Medicaid, with exception to the SNAP program, and, and housing, public housing benefits. Um, so the agency really is narrowing it down to three benefits that are going to the basic needs of individuals, and, and that's consistent with Congress's expressed intent that, that aliens admitted to the country um, not rely on public benefits to meet their basic needs. And or how does your rule, why, why is this rule superior to the 1999 um, field guidance and the primarily dependent standard, um, what, what, makes, what, makes this, what makes this a better rule than the primarily dependent standard that um, had prevailed for a number of years uh, before that? Why, why is this, why is this a superior means of defining the public charge provision. Right. So, the, you know, in the next guidance, you know, it defined primarily dependent as, as either long-term institutionalization or a dependence on cash benefits uh, for income. But what the agency found, and I think plaintiffs would agree, is that, you know, that, that applies to a very limited number of individuals and so there were not very many people deemed likely to become a public charge and what the agency determined is that you know Congress Congress was concerned about more than just um, individuals who are relying on cash benefits or likely to be institutionalized that it was um, concerned with you know a more general reliance on public benefits to meet basic needs and so it, it believed it should expand the definition to capture, you know, some other ways the government provides benefits to people: housing benefits, uh, you know, food benefits, and healthcare. So, you know, basically. Let me ask you this: if, Do you contend that your rule is the um, only correct interpretation of the public charge provision, or 
is the primarily dependent standard also a correct interpretation of the public charge provision? In other words, I, I'm, I'm wondering whether you see your rule as the definitive interpretation of public charge or even as the best interpretation of public charge or whether the field guidance um, is also a perfectly reasonable interpretation of the public charge provision. Yeah, I guess our, our position would, is that the term is ambiguous and that Congress has left the term's interpretation to the discretion of the executive branch and there's you know, much evidence of that in the legislative and statutory history, uh, which I could go through. But then, you know, to answer Your Honor's question, I think what we're advocating is that this is a reasonable interpretation and you know, the 1999 guidance may also have been a reasonable interpretation although you know as the agency explained in the rule itself we think this is a you know this rule is more consistent with congress's intent in 1996 to uh, ensure that aliens admitted to the country you know, didn't come for the purpose of obtaining benefits and, and don't use benefits once they i just want to be clear you're not contending that your particular rule is the definitive interpretation or even necessarily the uh, superior interpretation of the public charge provision and that let's suppose arguendo um, a new administration um, came into power in uh, next January it's, it's your position that it would be perfectly fine to return at that point to the 1999 field guidance standard, the primarily dependent standard. In other words, it would be, you, you're not saying that, I, I want to make sure I understand you on this point, you're not saying that a new administration could not change this its first day in office after going through the proper procedures that go with a a, a rule change. There would be no, there would be no bar to a different interpretation of the rule in 2021. Yes, Your Honor, we we agree with that statement that there is not a bar to interpretation. That this, we're not suggesting that this particular interpretation is compelled by by the text and, and can't be changed. Now, I mean, I, you know, part of the the rationale for adopting the rule is that it was, you know, in this administration's view, a better a better reading of the statute and, and more consistent with congressional intent. So in that sense, we think it is superior to... Well, well this, this, uh, this 12 and 36 is nowhere in the, in the statute, is it? Right, that's not inside, that, which is why, again, we're, yeah. Well, exactly. this, that, was just, that was just created out of a whole cloth. So well, I mean, I, you know, it, it was a threshold that was determined. Position, it's, it's your position that, that those two numbers could be... Uh, six and 60, uh, just as well as they're 12 and 36. If they could be 12 and 12 benefits in 36 months or six benefits in six, 60 months, five years. Well, I mean, they, they just made up a couple of numbers and, and stuck them in there. Well, I wouldn't say they made up a couple of numbers. I mean, they, the agency did uh, understand that you know a temporary or intermittent use of benefits you know, wouldn't suffice, and that you know there are individuals who, who need it on a very temporary basis, and and then did look at studies to determine that at least the twelve the twelve month uh, threshold. Um, uh, you had that in the eighteen eighty two statute or in the nineteen ninety nine uh, book, you'd be in much better shape. I'll tell you that. Um, well, you know. Yes, I mean, I, I mean, the overall point, I guess, I, we agree that that it is subject to revision, you know, in, but but that those particular thresholds were were determined through, you know, looking at, at benefits usage patterns and so forth. Um, I guess it's your, this is Judge Niemeyer. I guess it's your position that, like any line drawing, uh, you can draw lines at anywhere, and uh, the discretion is whether the line is drawn in an area where. Uh, it's reasonable to conclude that the person would be depending on public resources and would be burdening the public benefit system. 
That's correct, Your Honor. Yes, that's a very a more articulate way of saying yes. We we agree that you know there. Again, the overall thrust is to come up but, with a. But you can't a that it, it's it's made out of whole cloth, but it's made out of whole cloth in drawing a line somewhere between uh, one single benefit and. Uh, uh, total consumption of benefits, in other words, 100% reliance. And so the idea is to pick some place in between uh, that balances the two extremes. I, I suppose that's the conclusion one would draw. Yes, exactly. exactly. I guess this is where the um, arbitrary and capricious standard in the uh, Administrative Procedure Act um, has some applicability. Uh, if uh, if you were to say that someone was primarily uh, or that, that someone was likely to become a public charge based on a single month or two months of um, of uh, receiving public benefits, you would agree that that that's, that that slight a period of time on public benefits would be um, arbitrary and capricious or an unreasonable interpretation of the public charge provision. But to follow up on a point my colleague Judge Niemeyer made, um, I gather your position is 12 months out of 36 is not a trivial period. Um, and because it's a substantial period of time, it's not an arbitrary and capricious determination. Um, I'm not sure if that's your um, position, but I was interested in the point that Judge Niemeyer made on this. Sorry. <laughs> I, 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 um. Go ahead and answer the, the, the question. I'm interested in, because I think Judge Niemeyer it raised a good point about this not not being just plucked out of thin air. It eventually, agencies run up against an arbitrary and capricious standard or an ultra-virus problem. And I gather you would say that it would if instead of 12 months it were one or two months out of the next 36, there would be a point where the rule would become um, highly draconian in a way that would not be consistent with the public charge provision. Am I correct uh, about that? that, I, that I, I think, yeah, I think that is generally that is correct. And certainly the agency on the rationale it gave uh, here, it, it, it made clear that it understood Historically, the rule, you know, not to apply to people who are just using very temporary or intermittent benefits, and so I certainly on that rationale, there would be, you know, no basis for concluding that I mean, one month of benefits would would qualify someone as a public charge, or in you know, in addition, you know, there are certain benefits like public schools that are available to everyone, and we're not talking about those types of benefits. All right, I'm going to ask, but you are not doing it strictly on a historical basis. You're doing it on a futuristic, uh, speculative basis. That's the point that I said when I indicated I thought it was being made up out of whole cloth because you just created it. You create a number, you pull it out of the air and say, this is what we're going to use. Well, look, doing it historically, you've got a better argument. But that's not what you're arguing here. Solely what you're arguing. Um, you know, I, I guess... Our historical view is that the, the term has always been subject to interpretation and, and open to interpretation, um, and that you know the agency made an attempt here to set a threshold that it believed was you know, greater than a de minimis amount of benefits or a temporary amount of benefits, and consistent with usage patterns. In, in How did you arrive at the 12-month figure? I think that's what Judge King is. Yeah. Right. So I think I, there is, and I, you know, I can I can look up the specific sites, but the, it is discussed in uh, at length in the rule itself, the final rule, about you know it, the agency looked at usage patterns, how how many people use benefits for a year, if they use them for a year, are they likely to stay on them for a long period? Um, I mean, and you know, how many use it for just a temporary point in time and that sort of thing. And so it, it derived the 12 months by kind of concluding that once once you 
once you've shown that you've used it for 12 months, you tend to stay on it for, you know, for a longer period of time or to use it regularly as opposed to people who are using it. Less what, than is the, what is the basis for that statement? Um, I'd have to, I'd have to look. I, I can get, you know, uh, on rebuttal perhaps I can get the, the particular point in the uh, rule where it, it discusses that. Um, but there is there is a section of the rule, um, the preamble to the rule that that identifies you know how they went about determining the 12 month uh, threshold. Is that is there some empirical basis for it? Yeah, there are studies of benefits usage by you know benefits organizations and your benefit agencies to to determine you know how long people stay on benefits and how much they use and, and so forth. And, and uh, you know the the notice of proposed rulemaking also has an extensive discussion of how much, how extensive, you know, how much on average a person uses of, of various benefits and, and so forth as well. But the 12 months is specifically um, discussed uh, in the rule. Judge King, do you have some further questions? No, sir. Appreciate it. Um, Judge Niemeyer, do you have further questions? Not now. Okay. Well, thank you, Your Honor. All right, um, Mr. Backer, we would be happy to hear from you. Good morning, Your Honors. Uh, may it please the Court, Jonathan Backer for the plaintiffs. For over a century, the public charge in admissibility ground has been interpreted narrowly and in accordance with its plain meaning to exclude only non-citizens who are likely to rely on the government to meet all of their basic needs. DHS's public charge rule departs radically from that settled meaning by denying non-citizens admission based on what is, in DHS's own words, an inherently subjective prediction about whether non-citizens are likely at any point in the rest of their lives to receive only a small amount of supplemental public assistance for even a short period of time. The district court properly held that this rule is contrary to law. The meaning of the term public charge was clear when it was first enacted in 1882, and it has retained that meaning over more than a century of court and agency decisions and repeated recodifications by Congress. In 1882, contemporaneous dictionaries, the statute's provision of temporary assistance to arriving immigrants, and the nature of public assistance at that time confirmed that only those primarily dependent on the government were public charges. In the early 20th century, this definition was the foundation of the Supreme Court's decision in Gagyal and other lower court decisions. But what um, you have, this was adopted in, in 1882. That's a long time ago. Um, it's basically around the same year that Coca-Cola was founded, which is a long time back. Um, and over a century um, or more, well over a century, Congress has not defined the term public charge. Um, it's left it alone. And it has not written into the term public charge a primarily dependent standard. Uh, it would have been open and and permissible for Congress to do whatever it wanted. If it had wanted to define public charge in the way that you're suggesting, it could have legislated a primarily dependent standard. And it didn't do that. And so I'm wondering if the public, if, if Congress's unwillingness or lack of interest or whatever in not defining this term, but wasn't the result of a series of decisions by the legislative branch stretching well over a century to leave the definition of this term uh, within the purview of the executive branch. Um, why, why can't we determine that we've got a somewhat vague term here, public charge, which could mean 
one of a number of things. But the fact that Congress didn't alight upon a particular meaning, and we make of that silence a desire by Congress to leave the executive branch the discretion to fill in the details. I don't think we can, Your Honor, and, and that's because I think you're right, Your Honor, that, that to a modern ear, the term public charge does sound ambiguous and, and strange. I mean, it's a, it's a Dickensian word. It sounds like it's right out of Dickens. But if you went back to the 19th century, it, there was a clear meaning. And the Ninth Circuit and State decision acknowledged that, that in, in, the, in, the 18th century, in the 19th century, public charge meant someone who was unwilling or unable to provide for themselves in total. Um, and the fact that Congress never provided a definition, that, that's because it had a settled meaning and that it was, it was reasserted over and over again in court decisions and agency decisions and just in the practicality of, of what INS and the various enforcement agencies over the years, how they were actually enforcing uh, the, the, the provision. So Congress never would have thought that it was necessary to define in statute the primarily dependent standard because in practice, that's the standard that, had, that governed in 1882 and had always governed throughout the entire 138 years that this provision has been enforced. Please, um, I, I hear what you're saying, but this primarily dependent standard, which, which you, primarily dependent standard, which you are talking about um, as being in uh, in effect for all of these many many decades. Um, it it only appeared in so many words in the 1990 field guidance manual, and the, as I understand it, the 1999 field guidance manual uh, lacked the. Uh, status of even a formal rule. And um, so I'm not sure that this primarily dependent standard has been in effect as long as you suggest it has. Um, and it's not as if Congress was oblivious to this. You're familiar with the uh, Senate Judiciary committee report in 1950? Yes, Your Honor, I am. Well, what I want you to address is that it seems to me that that committee report had explicitly uh, before Congress, or at least the, the Senate, whether it should go further in trying to define public charge. And the report says, no, we don't want to go further in defining public charge because we are content to leave the definition of this to the ebb and flow of events and to the interpretation of the executive. So why isn't the silence of Congress over all these years, why doesn't that reflect exactly what this Senate report this, uh, indicated, which was that we want to leave this within reason to the discretion of the executive. Well, first of all, Your Honor, it's true that the words primarily dependent weren't used in previous uh, BIA decisions or court cases, but the 1999 field looked back at the long history that I've described about the public charge provision and, conc and concluded that the primarily dependent uh, standard was what had always governed. And you can look to uh, the 1964 uh, BIA decision that was uh, adopted by, by Attorney General Robert Kennedy uh, uh, and Martinez Lopez says that um, the standard governing uh, public charge is that ordinarily somebody who, who's healthy and in the prime of life uh, cannot be considered a public charge. That's just the primarily dependent standard by another word. And it, as far as the, the 1950 uh, Senate report goes, I mean, first of all, I'll, I'll just note that that is that, that's summarizing the views of a five-person subcommittee. Uh, so take take that for what it's worth. But in addition, what's described there, if you look closely, it's not talking about competing definitions of public charge. It doesn't set forth any competing definitions of public charge. What the report goes through are various different 
circumstances that might be relevant to a public charge determination. So it talks about assets. It talks about physical uh, disability. It talks about uh, the potential for incarceration uh, of an individual. So those are individual circumstances, any of which could be relevant to the settled meaning of public charge that's primarily dependent on the government for subsistence. Um, I, I don't necessarily disagree with, with that in the sense that what you're suggesting is a perfectly permissible way to define public charge, but might this not be a case in which both you and Mr. Sinzak are right? I mean, this might be a case in which you, you both are putting forward a permissible definition of, of public charge. And it doesn't, this is not an either-or situation. It's a situation where, where you know, you're lined up as, as, as adversaries before us today, and yet your, your views might both be right. Um, wh wh and if, as Mr. Sinzak said, if a, if a new administration came in in 2021, they could change it, and that would be a correct interpretation as well, nobody's saying that the the field guidance or the primarily dependent standard is is incorrect. We're just I'm just suggesting that it may not be the only correct um, way to define this find this term. Yes, Your Honor, and um, we you know we would submit that that public charge has a clear definition, just if you look at the dictionary definitions and what was going on in 1882 and what public assistance looked like then and that has been carried through throughout history. But the, but the definition put forward by the government is not reasonable by any stretch of the imagination. And just to illustrate that... Yes, sir, uh, uh, can I challenge that just one second, uh, uh, at least to have you respond to it? It seems to me that uh, Section 1601 lays out the policy, uh, compelling government policy, talking about persons who might uh, be using public resources, is the word they use, and that would burden public benefit systems. And it seems to me that uh, uh, that is not narrow. That is uh, much broader uh, than what you're arguing. But, Your Honor, Section 1601 was part of Perora, which changed the public charge provision not one jot. Nothing about Perora affected the public charge provision at all. So not only is that just perpetuary language, not any, it, it's just a policy statement, but, but it's, it's from a policy that has nothing to do with public charge. Uh, but it's a policy statement that reflects the underlying policy for the public charge statute. In other words, the idea is that immigrants not be attracted to this country for public benefits and that they do not use or burden the public public resources is the word they use. And uh, uh, while obviously that isn't the statute itself, it seems to me when Congress says that's a compelling government interest, as they say in that provision, uh, that's something we ought to listen to, isn't it? Well, of course, Your Honor, and, and we don't uh, contend that it is not a compelling government interest. It's just that Perora uh, and Congress through Perora uh, affected that policy goal through a number of other means totally unrelated to public charge. It, it required it added deeming provisions that, that, that uh, attributed a sponsor's income to uh, a non-citizen if they apply for benefits. It added the, the affidavit of support provision, and it, it set a number of restrictions that make it difficult for most non-citizens to get public benefits at any point uh, until five years after they've already uh, adjusted status and already had a public charge determination. So Congress pursued those, the goals that were articulated in 1601, through several, several different means. There's no reason to attribute those perfectory words in 1601 uh, as related to the public charge provision. But is it fair to look at the statute as a whole in interpreting the public charge provision, particularly this um, sponsorship re requirement, um, which seems to underscore the 
fact that self-sufficiency is a an important consideration in immigration uh, policy and that uh, requires um, aliens, no matter what their financial circumstances are, to have sponsors who would reimburse the government for the use of a means-tested te benefit. Does, uh, is it fair to look at the statute as a whole and to, to take provisions like the sponsorship provision and say that that, that is supportive of a rule which tries to underscore self-sufficiency as part of a public charge definition. Of course one can look to the whole statute, but I don't think that the affidavit support provision is a particularly probative example of what public charge means in the statute. And that's because it, it, it's not, uh, it, it only applies for a limited number of non-citizens. So it doesn't apply at all to diversity visa applicants. It doesn't apply to most employer petition applicants for adjustment of status. It only applies, it doesn't apply to uh, people who are adjusting based on the petition of a spouse or a, a U.S. citizen child. And in addition, it only applies for the first five to ten years that a non-citizen is in the United States. So if, if as the government suggests, the, the affidavit support provision is sort of the, 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 the touchstone for understanding what public charge means, it, it's an odd way for, for Congress to, uh, to signify that. Well, but it and, must mean something in terms of self-sufficiency and in terms of the ability of an administration, any administration, to um, de define those words. But let, let me ask a broader question here. Um, isn't it important to maintain some flexibility in American immigration policy and not have it become overly fixed and rigid. And this term public charge, which has a certain fuzziness to it and a certain ambiguity, at least has the virtue of allowing U.S. immigration policy to remain flexible, not unduly harsh, not unduly permissive, but but flexible. I, I, I kind of look at it all as an accordion, which, you know, goes, goes in and out, and the, the policy should be like that accordion, sometimes permissive, sometimes restrictive, depending upon the needs of the country, the circumstances on the ground, the uh, results of different elections. But if we try to freeze the definition of this and, and try to simply fix it and set it in some sort of concrete where Congress has not done so, don't we just harden and rigidify a policy which has to be somewhat somewhat flexible simply because the needs of the country change. Yes, Your Honor, and just because the definition of public charge is and always has been primarily dependent on the government for subsistence, that doesn't mean that the agency... Is there anywhere in the statutory history where this is a formula of like this 12 benefits in 36 months and that they that they've come up with here in this particular rule is that dropped on, on anything in the statutory history from 1882 to the present day no no your honor the 1236 standard is nowhere in the statutory history or indeed any of the judicial de uh, decisions interpreting the, the the meaning of public charge or any of the agency decisions. Um, and the, the reason you can really tell that by focusing on the INS publications from the 1950s and, and 1940s, if you look at the one from 1950 that we submitted in a 28-J letter, uh, that reviewed 3.5 years of uh, deportation decisions under public charge grounds. There were 80 
deportation decision. Every single one, 100% of those, involve people who are institutionalized. So, and, and, that, and that's a moment that, that, uh, that DHS argues is very important in the development of public charge because that's when the INA went into effect. But it's clear that the agency enforcing the public charge provision at that time had an understanding of public charge that is much closer to the primarily dependent standard than as well. Mr. Backer, um, let me ask you this. In terms of the question of whether um, this was pulled out of thin air, mm -hmm. you, you don't contest the fact that, the, at least I didn't see it, it was contested that this rule was adopted in accordance with the procedures in the Administrative Procedures Act. You've taken public comment. You've gone the the, the, uh, um, the, the government went through the different steps um, that are procedurally required to uh, precede the adoption of any rule. No, we do not. It was not procedurally defective. All right, if it's not procedurally defective, then that is, says something about if, if, if the administration or the go any government conducted um, a procedurally fair history, a procedurally fair proceeding, and took comments and consulted studies and went about investigating the whole area in a thorough manner. And how can we then say that the, the definition it came up with is arbitrary and capricious or somehow ultra-virus? Um, I mean, it may not be the definition that that you would want or even that I would want. It's not a question of whether one of us does or doesn't like the rule. I'm just wondering how, if it, if it went through a thorough vetting, how it can be said um, to be plucked out of of thin air because I think Judge King raises a very interesting point as he always does and I want to um, to understand how this can be viewed as simply an arbitrary administrative practice in the absence of some procedural deficiency. Well, Your Honor, of course, the arbitrary and capricious claim is not before the court presently, but, the, you know, you can look to the Fiscal Policy Institute amicus brief that sets forth in great detail how DHS failed to respond to several uh, numerous issues that were brought up in the, the comments and were not adequately addressed by the agency. And, and, and you know, I'll just, but I think that the key for, for this court is understanding that there are outer bounds that even ambiguous, if the term is ambiguous, that the agency cannot go past in defining a term. And here, look at, at SNAP, for example. An average SNAP benefit is $127. Over 12 months, that means that somebody uh, would receive $1,500 in SNAP benefits. Now, to put now, that in context, you're going to have to help us, me with his, these. Yes, Your Honor. So, sorry, I'm talking about food stamps, um, which is one of the benefits that are that part helps. of the I understand, I understand that better than SNAP. Thank you. Yes. And um, so someone who's earning income at the federal poverty level, over three years, they would earn $38,000. So we're talking about $1,500, the equivalent of, you know, one of the stimulus checks that somebody recently got. Mr. Backer? Yes. Backer? Um, it seems to me you raise an entirely fair point and a good point. I just, uh, the question I have is, what is the appropriate forum to raise that in? Isn't the appropriate forum to raise that in prior to the adoption of the rule? Um, and I'm sure that uh, points like the one you just raised, which, which I thought was very good indeed, 
I'm sure that those were brought before the agency and they were in, and were considered, were they not? But, but, Your Honor, of course there's judicial review over whether a statutory uh, definition, a definition put forward by an agency is permissible under the statute and it comports with Congress's intent. And what, what we're arguing is such a broad definition of public charge that would allow $1,500 over 36 months predicted, we're looking with as a predictive judgment, could be in some of the public charge. That, that just simply isn't what public charge means. And just look at the definition of charge that exists in the 19th century as someone who's entrusted to the custody or management of a government. Somebody who is otherwise earning income, $38,000, but gets $1,500 of benefits from the government, that person isn't in the, the, the custody of the government. They're not being managed day to day by the government. So I understand what Your Honor is saying about the need to air these concerns in notice and comment rulemaking, but the, the job of, of the court is to look at the statutory definition, the, the definition of the, the term that's been put forward, and consider whether that exceeds the outer bounds of whatever ambiguity the term can bear. And, and in this case, this is an easy case, Your Honor. Public charge simply doesn't mean what DHS has defined it to mean. Well, um, <laughs> I'm glad you find it an easy case. Um, but um, I just want to say uh, how much I appreciate your, your argument. I think both Mr. Uh, Sinsdak and you have presented some very fine arguments, and I want to... Um, ask Judge Niemeyer and Judge King if they have further questions of you. I'm fine. Not at this time. Um, Judge King? I'm fine. Okay. Thank you so much, Mr. Backer. Thank you. M Mr. Grog, um, you have some time. I understand you're representing the United Ho uh, States House of Representatives in an amicus capacity. And we welcome you before the court and would like to hear what you have to say. Thank you, Your Honor, and, and thank you very much for permitting the House to participate as amicus in support of Appalachia today. Um, without uh, repeating the uh, arguments and, and helpful discussions that you've had with my, my colleagues, I, I'd just like to emphasize four points. Um, First, DHS's rule is impossible to reconcile with the statutory provisions that Congress did enact in 1996 to further a goal of promoting self-sufficiency among immigrants to America. It is implausible that the same Congress that made non-citizens eligible for public benefits after a certain number of years also intended to permit an agency to redefine the term public charge to exclude immigrants who might accept those benefits. Second, ever since Congress enacted a law excluding those likely to become public charges in 1882, the term public charge has always meant those primarily dependent on public support, and it has never included those who receive de minimis public benefits. So are you saying so, that the um, field guidance and the primarily de uh, dependent standard is the only permissible standard? Your Honor, Ever since the, the term entered the immigration laws, it has meant primarily dependent. And we know that from contemporaneous dictionary definitions, from uh, early judicial constructions, from consistent agency interpretations, all the way up through to and including the, the 1990 field, 1999 field guidance, as the agency explains then. And well, why don't those words appear in the statute? So I'm, I'm glad I'm glad you asked that, Your Honor. Uh, you know, you you've had a coll a colloquy with my colleague, Mr. Backer, about why Congress had not defined the term public charge, and the answer is that under established precedent, Congress didn't have to. It didn't have to define the term because it could leave the term undefined on the basis of more than a century's worth of precedent defining it in terms of primary dependence. That's the the Helton case that we've cited. Um, the Forest Grove School District case. Yes, but during that, during that whole period, Mr. Grog, immigration policy didn't remain static. There were ebbs and flows to it, and yet even in the midst of all those ebbs and flows, 
Congress resisted the pressure or the temptation or whatever to um, uh, take um, to, to enact a more precise definition. And and what I'm concerned about here, I guess, and and um, uh, you as a member of our fine legislative branch of, of government um, might be concerned about it as well if, if, if we go with your interpretation I worry that immigration policy is going to be set primarily in the to, or to a greater extent in the judicial branch of government and removed to a greater extent from the legislative and the executive branches of government. Um, and to, to my mind, um, immigration policy is something in which the political branches should take a primary role. And the political branches take a primary role in two respects. Um, one, in the changing or in the flexible definition in the administrative process of public charge, and two, in the continuing ability of the Congress of the United States to amend the statute. And so this, um, I, I, I want to, I think the Supreme Court has many, many times said that the driving force in immigration policy should be the Congress and the executive and not the judiciary. And if we try to freeze this, um, if we try to freeze this definition and say, oh, it means one and only one thing, and that's all it can mean, aren't we taking a step in the other direction and, in, and inserting the federal judiciary into this whole area to a greater degree than is warranted? Thank you, Your Honor. There, there is no doubt that the Constitution assigns Congress the responsibility for establishing a uniform rule of naturalization. And the, the House's concern here is to preserve uh, Congress's ability to reenact a statutory term against the backdrop of that term's settled meaning without the risk that an agency dissatisfied with Congress's policy judgment. Mr. Crock, uh, Yes, Your Honor. Uh, it, uh, it seems to me that if the position of the House is that public charge has a meaning uh, that is at risk, the solution is for the House to enact a provision that counters what the courts have done or what they may do or what the position is. It's curious to me that the House of Representatives would come to an Article Three court and ask the court to construe a statute in the way the House intended when the House can simply say what it intended. And uh, I find the whole thing a little uh, out, of, out of balance as to uh, our functions. Uh, the House of Representatives is the lawmaking function, and uh, uh, apparently it's the House's position that public charge has a particular meaning, and uh, it can say so. But it seems to me uh, the... Uh, judiciary is left with construing what has been done in accordance with the uh, principles of uh, the APA and whatever uh, legal propositions are handled. But to leave it undefined and then to come say this is what we meant to a judiciary, uh, the House has many times gone and corrected courts. The Supreme Court has uh, ruled in a particular way uh, uh, in construing a statute and you find Congress going back and overruling that and making clear what the Congress intended. Uh, I'm sort of wondering why that isn't, uh, if you're authorized to be here on behalf of the House, why wouldn't you also be authorized to just take your battle to the House uh, and fix it uh, if, if it's broken according to the House? Thank you, Your Honor. Yes, I mean, certainly the House has a number of, of tools at its, at its disposal. But I mean, here the, the relevant point is that the House and Congress as a whole in reenacting this term without material change in 1996 was under established Supreme Court precedent adopting um, the interpretation that has, has 
certainly, Judge Wilkinson, to your point, and as recognized in, in any number of documents, uh, varied, but within precise bounds. It has varied in uh, only within a, a, a general definition of being primarily dependent. Yeah, um, but and, you know, if it leaves it undefined, and let's just assume that there's a big change of circumstances that uh, 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 our borders are flooded, uh, can't the agency all of a sudden say, well, we construe this, the reason our borders are flooded is because people want the benefits of welfare, or they want the benefits of this, or they want the benefits of that. Can't uh, those changing circumstances authorize the executive to apply the public charge, which is a broad term and covers that, uh, to the current circumstances? It, it, it seems to me to say that the House deliberately left public charge undefined because that's the way earlier courts had defined it is hardly the way the legislature should act. If you see a changing condition, you can change, uh, uh, change the law. You can define public charge. Uh, I don't know where we get the authority to say because the House didn't amend it, it therefore has to stay the same. Your Honor, I point you to the uh, 2009 decision uh, from the Supreme Court in the Cuomo versus Clearinghouse matter. We've cited this in our briefs, and I believe the parties have too. So there, the question was about the meaning of the term visitorial powers in the National Bank Act, like public charge to a, a modern ear, perhaps it sounds somewhat foreign or, or undefined. And what the court held there under the familiar Chevron inquiry was that the presence, I'm quoting now, the presence of some uncertainty in the meaning of that term does not expand Chevron deference to cover virtually any interpretation of the National Bank Act. We can discern the outer limits of the term even through the clouded lens of history. And the same is, is true here. And it was in reliance on these principles that Congress in 1996 reenacted the term without change. All right. Thank you, Mr. Grog, for your fine argument. And we appreciate your being here. And um, I'm going to ask uh, my friend Judge King if he has some questions for you, and then Judge Niemeyer if he has further questions for you. Judge King, do you have some questions? No, thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Judge Niemeyer? Now, I'd just like to express our appreciation to have the House send a an official delegation to visit us and express its opinion. Uh, uh, and that's always a nice interchange. Uh, uh, so it's good to hear from you. Certainly Thank is. Thank you, Your Honor. And, um, Thank you, Your Honor. Mr. Sinsdak, you have um, a, a few minutes of rebuttal. We'd be pleased to hear from you. Uh, thank you, Your Honor. I'll, I'll just try to keep this brief. Um, just, I just wanted to go back to Judge King's question about the 12-month standard. Um, there is, a, as I mentioned, a lengthy discussion, and I have the site here in the Federal Register the, for the final rule. Uh, it's at 84 Federal Register, uh, page 41,359 to page 41,363. And there the, the agency discusses the various studies, including the uh, Census Bureau's dynamics of economic well-being study and a number of others, uh, and it explains how it came up with the 12-month standard based on those studies and other analysis. Um, and then, in a sense, a couple of points that have been already raised, we, we've covered a lot of this ground already, but, you know, as, as your honors have mentioned, Congress has at no point in the history of the legislation ever indicated, given any indication, that it thought that the term public charge had some sort of fixed, settled meaning. Um, and in fact, uh, from the 1950 Senate report and from the statute's text itself, we know that Congress was aware that there were varied interpretations and wanted to leave it to the discretion of the executive branch. And, and of course, it has never defined the term. Um, uh, you know, I, I'd also point out that even the 1999 guidance, which set forth this primarily dependent standard, indicated that the term was ambiguous and it was offering up just one reasonable interpretation uh, of the statute. So, uh, and of course, as our brief discusses at length, there were varied definitions given over time. And, and, and the reason, presumably, Congress left it up to the discretion of the executive branch was for the executive branch to to adapt to the circumstances of a, of a changing uh, immigration and changing welfare policies and so forth. And, and this provision you know, reflects an exercise, a reasonable exercise of, of that discretion. Um, you know, I, you know, I would just, one very minor point, uh, you know, opposing counsel mentioned that 
you know, people who are healthy in the prime of life uh, would not be considered public charges previously. Well, that, that's also true under the rule. In fact, the rule indicates there's, as an example of someone who wouldn't be a public charge, someone who is healthy in, in uh, you know, in college and so forth. Um, so there's no reason to conclude that that the average, you know, this is going to result in an average healthy person uh, become, being deemed a public charge. So um, that is that is all I had. If, if your honors have any further questions, I'm happy to address anything else that came up uh, during the argument. All right. Um, well, that concludes the argument. I, I, uh, when you get when all three of you have given such a fine argument, and obviously have um, come before us with a great deal of preparation and thought. It, 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 it's really um, disappointing to me that we can't come down and shake your hands the way we normally do at the end of every argument um, in the Fourth Circuit. But I, I hope that you will um, uh, understand us sincere appreciation for the quality of your advocacy in what is a very important case. And um, thank, thank all three of you so very much, and, and please stay safe. Now I will ask the courtroom deputy, uh, we will, the court will take a brief recess.